So through gaming, I've learned that you probably shouldn't threaten a scared wizard with having a gnoll eat his friend. Through gaming, I've learned that being beaten up by the big dumb guy can actually be fun. And through gaming, I've learned that sometimes there really are crimes against spandex. My name's Wayne Cole, and I am the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. This is the Vorpal Network. VorpalNetwork.com This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Gamerati.com, It's Good to Be a Gamer, Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine for gamers of all types, and listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon Store. This is Robert J. Schwab, the Prince of Darkness of Gaming, and uh, I'm here on The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, we're going to venture into my favorite place in all of gaming, The Dungeon, as we view Into the Unknown in episode 196. Today we are joined by Michael, the online DM, Joe Lestowski, and our favorite editor, Sam Dillon. And later we'll be joined by Logan Bonner, who wrote uh, part of the book and was lead designer, and Matt James. That's right. Uh, now, normally this is the bite where we would talk about some uh, news and specifically delve into some of the latest topics for D&D Next. Now, we just recorded uh, about, a, what, a week ago? Yeah. There's not a whole heck of a lot that's come out since then, to the point that I think we'll just save some D&D Next discussion for another time, if that's okay with everybody. We did want to remind people, though, of some Tome news. Yeah, uh, we have episode 200 coming up, and I'm in charge of that one. So you can always email me at tracy at starterdarkmagic.com if you have any uh, requests for that show. We're also doing a number of live podcast recordings at Gen Con, and I'm sure all of you are attending if you can. We do have some upcoming episodes that people should be looking out for. We are... We're going to be looking at a bunch of comic books for this month's book club, and we are discussing the new novel by Bruce Cordell, Spinner of Lies, for next month's book club. Next month being, what is this, May? So next month being June of 2012. Um, And of course, we'll continue to bring you your regular advice and review episodes that month as well. Yeah. But in this episode, we're going to be looking at the latest 4th edition book, Into the Unknown, the Dungeon Survival Handbook, trademarked. Uh, but before <laughs> <laughs> but before we can get to that, let's uh, talk about our sponsor, Continue Magazine. If you like games, Continue Magazine has something for you. They cover video games, tabletop games, and the culture around them. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. 
And we are back, and now we are going to hear from Logan Bonner, one of the co-authors and what lead designer on the book. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Excellent. So welcome back, Logan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Into the Unknown, what is this book? What's its purpose? What's it all uh, about? It's- Purpose is to let the, both DMs and players know all about dungeons, why they're exciting, uh, what sort of things you can run into in them, and to give them some kind of characters who are archetypal dungeon explorers uh, and kind of make them excited about dungeons. Very good. So now as lead designer, does that mean that you also sort of uh, coordinate and wrangle all the other people who are working on, on the book? Right. Um, and also, so on this project, they already had kind of the the outline and the example things worked up by Rob Schwalb. Uh, so on this one, most of my duty was, uh, was wrangling Matt James and Jeff Morganroth and writing some sections of my own. Right on. Because this is... Um... As I as I go through it, I do feel like the the book does a nice job of sort of speaking with a similar voice, and I didn't know how much of that was you sort of uh, keeping everybody in line, or if, if that just was a happy accident, or how that that came to be. Uh, part of that is uh, I decided pretty early on that we wanted to go for a kind of consistent tone that was a little bit different from the other D and D books, a little more informal and a little more um, kind of uh, excited, something that sounds almost like it's been written in the D&D world and that if you're an adventure, you picked up this book and you're reading advice straight from it. So I gave that direction to the freelancers and then I did some um, some revisions myself to kind of make sure that was all consistent. And then, of course, the editors picked up on that and, and carried it out the rest of the way. Very good. I'm a D&D player. Why should I buy into the unknown? Uh, you should buy it because you want to uh, get a really good feeling for uh, all the tips and tricks you need when you go into a dungeon. So you can look at some characters who you can either play as or will give you some good ideas of why kind of uh, crazy or messed up people end up going into dungeons looking for loot instead of starting up a nice shop or, or farming up on the surface. Um, you buy it because you want to play a no or play a Swerfneblin or a Cobalt or a Goblin. Uh, look for some of those new races that haven't gotten on a lot of love in the past. Or if you want to look at different adventuring societies that are based around dungeons, uh, and looking into the lore from those and that kind of stuff, there's a lot of options like that in there. And I find it interesting that, that when I ask that question, the first thing that you talk about is uh, largely fluff and advice. You know, you, you mechanics were, what, three or four down the list. Um, yeah. was, was that an intentional design decision when, when working on this book, is that you were going to focus a lot on, on more of those things and less on the mechanics? Uh, well, mechanics, there's still a lot of mechanical stuff in this book. There's quite a pretty big portion um, but there is definitely an emphasis on um, on tying all that so it it made sense with the the fiction really well and um, emphasizing you know well we have these themes and they need to really speak specifically to the dungeon and they need to be really fleshed out 
uh, with like specific organizations and that stuff tied to them. Um, and the, the iconic characters that go through the book kind of hook into all those different areas. Um, like even if you don't use the iconic characters themselves, they made a good um, kind of nexus where everything could link in. And so it all gave it a, a really good fiction tie. Yeah. And uh, I really liked a lot of the fiction and the tying in that, that you're talking about. And one of the things in particular is I know a lot of, I know a fair number of DMs uh, like to have complete control over their story and not allow for uh, necessarily player input. But in this book, if you're the DM who likes to have the let the players have a little more control, it seems like the player choices, the groups that they pick and things like that can help build the dungeon for you as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was also wondering where you got some of the inspiration for that, if, if you were the one behind it. or um, I think I was the one behind kind of saying, you know, we have these characters and we have these themes... And we should make it so that that can drive the creation of the dungeon rather than the other way around. I think I decided to like actually put in, uh, or I think that was sort of in the outline, but I decided how to flesh it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember for sure whether that was Rob's idea or mine. Um, but I, I kind of did the, the section on using the, the creating story hooks based on the, the themes that you're using and that sort of thing. Um, because we, since we went so concrete with how we were doing the themes in this book, it just made sense to, to say, not only should you use these in your game, but here are some very specific ways you can use them. Yeah, and I also noticed there was a, the creation of the shared language with uh, talking about the different uh, types of hooks, that, mm-hmm. like the newcomer and uh, I'm forgetting the other ones, like the plot twist and, and, and things like that, yeah, yeah. That, that I thought was really cool. Um, yeah, that was kind of um, that. That was kind of put in there so to to make you think really specifically about um, not only what would be cool events and people to bring into your game, but to for the DM to really think about it as how does that specifically affect the people you have playing at your table and the characters they're playing. Very cool. So, so you worked on a lot of this book. Um, if you had to pick out your favorite thing that you worked on in this book, that you want everybody to, to look at, if you, you know if you had to pick out a, a section to put in your portfolio of game design, uh, what would you pull out? Uh, well, I am I am really happy with that section on incorporating plot twists and incorporating the themes. Um, I had a, a really good time doing the random dungeon creation tables. Mm-hmm. Um. So and I, I I like that sort of thing that's kind of just here for inspiration and here to get you started and then that uh, kind of starts the engine for the the DM to get rolling on their game. Mm-hmm. I like how in the sidebar for the random dungeon tables you sort of outright say, "Look, we understand." you're not going to necessarily roll up a random dungeon, you know, but, mm-hmm. but look at the charts and, and pull it for inspiration. And then if you are, can't decide on something, go ahead and, and roll the dice and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I thought that was, that was uh, almost a little bit meta, you know, because typically <laughs> that's, that's the way people have always just sort of done it without having yeah. been told to do it that way. And you just sort of acknowledged, yes, we know that's how you're going to do it and that's fine. Here's a bunch right. of stuff for you to use. Yeah. And I think that's, 
that's the main purpose that um, that things like that really serve is is not so much you know follow this to the letter and get something. It's really like well, just have some fun screwing around with this, and then oh, during the course of that just kind of recreational activity, you're going to get inspired and actually come up with something you really like. It's more of a catalyst than an actual mm-hmm. uh, system that you should use to the letter. Okay, any uh, last things that you want to say or you want to let people know about the book? Um, uh, I, I do want to talk about the art a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, so the process on this was a little bit uh, different than older books because we had some concept art in advance of some of the some of the main characters that were going to be included in the book. Um, so we kind of had some cool ways that we could have them appear in different places uh, that were that were themed um, appropriately to them. So you'll see like Alex and uh, some of the other characters showing up several times, um, and uh, you'll also see the um, the big picture of the mind player for the DM chapter mm-hmm. uh, was kind of meant to be showing a literal dungeon master <laughs> yeah so the uh the map beneath him the art reference for it was a picture of some dwarven forge so uh-huh. it's really supposed to be like you know his hobby is working on his actual dungeon it sort of felt a little bit like the um some of the you know like the superhero comics of the the grand divine beings with the chessboard and they're they're mm-hmm. playing their cosmic game of chess with the superheroes right. it sort of felt like that looking at it very cool. Well, thanks for uh, writing the book. Uh, you know, we one of the the common things that came out as as we reviewed it, which the listeners will hear in a bit, is uh, we feel like uh, if this if this was the quality of book um, that was coming out at the beginning of fourth edition, we probably wouldn't be discussing D and D next right now. <laughs> so uh, we thank you for your work on it, and we thank you for joining us. All right, sure thing. Uh, so now that we've chatted with Logan some, let's uh, dig into the book and see what we how we feel about it. Into the Unknown, who wants to go first? This is Michael. I'll take a crack at it. Um, i w- w- got to say, when I finished reading the book, I thought of it as sort of the missing Dungeon Master's Guide 3 in a lot of ways. It's not entirely a DM book. The The front half is all player stuff, and then the, the back half is all DM stuff. But I think the advice in there was really good for DMs, so, uh, so I got a lot out of it personally. I can agree with that, too. And on top of it, I think this is one of the first books in fourth edition where i found all the pieces kind of working together like they introduced uh, themes and concepts for the players but they also on the D- in the dm sections tried to bring out how you would integrate them into an adventure like plot hooks and uh ways to introduce npcs and things like that that were more integrated with what the players might know from their their part of the book and i think um this book contains more fluff than any other uh, 4E supplement that I have read. And that's a good thing. I don't mean that as a derogatory statement. I like fluff, and it's done very well in this book. So that's uh, but not that it has no crunch, but uh, they. I, I felt like for the first time in a long time, I'm reading about the Underdark in a way that mixes the crunch and fluff together really, really nicely and makes it make sense without having to fill in the gaps yourself. 
And a lot of it was nostalgic fluff, too. It felt very much like a lot of the books that I used to read from first and second edition uh, in terms of, you know, getting into sort of the, the culture of the different races that they introduced or, or the, uh, we'll probably get into it later, the section where they talk about the different types of creatures that might make dungeons. A lot of it, it felt like they gave you a lot of the why, and that, that hasn't necessarily been at the forefront of some of the more recent uh D&D products, and it, it felt almost like a, a nostalgic throwback to older editions with that, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like um, this sort of fits very well into sort of a common type of book that, that Wizards will oftentimes put out for D&D, whether it be, you know, Heroes of the Feywild or Shadow or whatever the theme is for that book, um, the, the traditional sort of splat book, if you will. But most usually those books are coming out in rapid succession and you find some gems in every one of them this is one that i feel like they really took the time to develop and and let everything sort of be a gem you know they they didn't bother with stuff because they needed to fill pages everything they they put in there was in there because they wanted to have it in there you know mm-hmm. sure well should we go through uh the different parts and see what's in there Let's. yes you, somebody said that the first half is all about players, uh, and that certainly fits into Chapter 1, which is the Dungeon Delvers section, which includes new new themes, races, uh, themed powers, all that kind of stuff. What do we think? I'll let someone else start. All right, this is Joe. I'll, I'll say, just from right off the bat, opening it up, looking at the artwork, the artwork throughout this book blew me away, but every piece of artwork in here tells a story and makes me want to learn more about what that section of the book is about based on the artwork there and and right in chapter one you get this this intricate weird like tree thing with runes all over the roots and you've got some uh, there's there's stories in all of these pictures and that made me want to read this chapter just looking just flipping through and browsing and looking at the artwork so that was really um really fantastic and uh um john uh john shindahet uh has really stepped up to the plate with all the uh all the sort of art direction uh, in this project. Mm. Yeah, no, the art is great. Um, I think talking about the themes, um, they're all they're all really on on target for Underdark. You know, you have escaped thralls and deep delvers and treasure hunters and trapsmiths. And it was kind of funny reading through them. Uh, each theme gets a good write up, fluff wise, like Sam was talking about. You know, here's what the story behind this kind of character is. And then they get um, some ideas. If you're going to play this, how how will this manifest for your character's background? And then they get into the crunch of it. Here's the features you get, and then the optional utility powers, and then a sample character of that theme. You know, here is Carl Deepwalker, who is a deep delver, and his backstory and how his uh, deep delverness shows up, and then how to build a deep delver that's not this particular guy. Um, so I liked that. You got a lot of. Uh, you could, I mean, it's really a pretty lengthy write-up. I think it's about four pages for each theme. I think players could really, you know, understand what it's about. Uh, but, but I will say that um, there are a, a lot of the the powers from, you know, from a mechanical perspective. Uh, you know, they're about like any other theme. I don't think there's anything too crazy. But I did see that there were several themes here, and then other powers later on that start giving players things like there's a few that give blindsight in, in a certain circumstance or tremor sense, which was mm-hmm. kind of interesting. I hadn't seen that before, and I thought that was very on flavor for the Underdark. Yeah, so about the powers, uh, I agree with your last statement that that a lot of them are, put the flavor into the, the theme and it, and it really meshes really well. But in general, though, for me, the powers are kind of hit and miss. Like, um, for example, the escaped thrall theme, 
which you know supposedly this this particular type of PC broke away from their from their person who was dominating their brain through sheer force of will, basically, because that's the only thing they had going for them, and they escaped, uh, and now they're trying to eke out an existence. But yet they don't get any sort of bonus to will until level ten. Like mm, that yeah. that just seems kind of I don't know. It's a little off to me. I, I expected that the first thing I would see is some sort of a, you know, this this person has has an inherently strong will. Be, that's what allowed them to break free, and yet you got to wait till really, you know, level ten to get to it. So Although they do represent uh, some of that concept with the, the the starting feature, which is not will but psychic resistance, which could you know mechanically yeah, represent the same concept. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get it, but if you're if you're not a group that plays with a lot of psionic type things, which I know, you know, if you're going to go in the Underdark, lots of the sort of aberrant creatures run on psionic type domination powers. But mm-hmm. I'm just, it's got pluses and minuses, but they're still hit and miss. Like I don't like the trapsmith powers. Yeah, the trapsmith is kind of disappointing. The, the trapsmith powers are kind of the, this sort of encounter power trip the trap. If there's an enemy that enters a, a square adjacent to you and you happen to have a trap-making kit, suddenly you can be like, oh, well, I set a trap there, and so it does damage. And it's kind of like, eh, did you really bend down in the middle of battle to put your little you know, trinket trap down there? No. You, would you have like a little bear trap? You know what that I is, mean, though? That's, that's the pinchers of power from Goonies. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah, but eh, okay, but I don't. I, it's just not my style. I, I I wasn't really appreciative of the trapsmith powers. However, the treasure hunter powers. I love the treasure sense, um, and their their power pay attention seems really really powerful. And it's only a level six utility, so that's kind of what I mean by hit and miss. Like the escaped thrall has to wait till tenth level to get a plus one will, but but the treasure hunter gets like this awesome power at utility power at level six. Granted, it's a daily, but still. Um, you know, they're just hit and miss for me, and they're really well done, I think, but they just, I don't know. It seems like all of the flavor was, was was tr- they tried to do really well with it, and, and sometimes the powers are hit and miss. So the fluff is wonderful, the themes are wonderful, it gives a really good feeling, but eh, I don't know. I feel similar, uh, Sam, for slightly different reasons, in that I also feel like the powers are really hit and miss, but but specifically with flavor. Like, it's clear that in recent months, they're really working hard to um, make mechanics support story. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the powers in this do that really well. The mechanics support the story of the themes. Mm-hmm. Um, except sometimes they do, and it's natural, and it flows, and it feels right. And then sometimes it feels a little bit forced. You know, mm-hmm. like, right. like this doesn't really make sense, but I kind of get what you're doing. But eh, it's not really yeah. quite, you know, there. Yeah, that's, the, that's how I feel about the trip, the trap power. Yeah. But, you know, I will say, I know you, you mentioned that the, the escape thrall doesn't get that will until level 10. Like, yeah, but that's kind of a, a powerful thing for a level 1 feature. What the escape oh, thrall does get... Oh, it's a plus get, one. It's I know, I know. One. But it's a theme. Themes don't give you that much. <laughs> um, but, you know, themes mm-hmm. aren't supposed to be super powerful in general. I don't think so, anyway, in 4th edition. Mm-hmm. In 5th edition, maybe, <laughs> but not in 4th. <laughs> but I will say the escape thrall, um, the, the starting feature, one of the interesting things about it is it's an augmentable power. And when I first read that, I was thinking, well, this is dumb, so you have to be a psionic character and then i realized the starting feature also gives you one power point 
which is kind of mm-hmm. cool. Even if you're not a psionic character, now you have a little bit of psionic in you, which I like that from a flavor perspective. I also yeah. find it a little bit interesting and telling that that a couple times um, some of you guys have referred to this about how this all this makes sense in the Underdark and the Underdark and the Underdark. This is not the Underdark book that comes out later this year. Um, well, that's <laughs> my complaint. Um, my complaint. Uh, this might as well be named Underdark Number Two. Because this book is all about the Underdark. Sorry to burst your bubble. I know it's not named Underdark, and there's supposedly mm-hmm. another Underdark thing, but this is an Underdark book. Yeah, that's how I treated it. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm coming from a background of not knowing all the previous editions, and I haven't really done any specific Underdark adventures. So this was great for me. I, I learned about the Underdark and how it works and why it's different from the, the regular overworld. So yeah, thing- it was an Underdark book mm-hmm. to me. Another thing to pay attention to, to this is Joe. Uh, this book was designed to tie in with the latest uh, D&D Encounters season, Web of the Spider mm-hmm. Queen, which is all about the drow in the Underdark. So I think mm-hmm. in, in developing those products together, they probably themed a lot of it so that people participating in that organized play would have the ability to go to this book and sort of get mm-hmm. a primer on it if they didn't know what was going on. Sure. And, there, and in fact, it's, we are at the beginning of the, the summer of the Underdark, as I, as I understand it, from <laughs> Wizards of the Coast. It's yes. all going to be Underdark, Underdark, Underdark all summer. Mm. And I I have to say, like, I, I do like the sample characters given and everything, but on the other hand, um, I was not thrilled with how the female characters were presented in the art or in the text. So I'm a little nervous now about the whole Underdark thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. It, we'll see where it goes. But it was interesting that the uh, the races presented seemed to be very... Other than the goblin, the, cobl- the kobold and the uh, dark note, or the whatever Surf they're called. Surf Surf Niblin, uh, are very community-oriented, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the races a little bit. I think yeah. that they're, they're actually mm. kind of cool. Um, I think what Cobalt and Goblin had been presented before as playable races, sort of, is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were in the back of the monster manuals, I think. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I personally, I'm never much of a fan of monster races, so I'm not a, crazy about drow PCs and so on. I mean, I'll allow them if there's a good a good reason for it. But after reading the Goblin one, somehow I wanted to play a Goblin. I, I feel like they, <laughs> they did a good job with, the, I think, the flavor especially. Um, you know, I like that they have a, a feats that give them extra damage against big bigger creatures and things like that. Um, I don't know. I thought the goblin was surprisingly fun after reading it. It seemed like it'd be a cool character concept. I'm a big fan of playing monster PCs. So I, more options, the better. And ones that are actually designed to be, be PC races, as opposed to kind of cobbled together. You can do a PC based out of the monster manual um, is even better for me. Cause then, you know, it's maybe they've worked a little harder at development and, and balance. Yeah, well, and the descriptions given for a lot of the races are helpful to the DMs, too, who want to create um, monsters that have, in particular, if they want to create uh, monsters that are, have a bit of gray to them. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, so they're not just evil or good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it really goes into how the communities work uh, with each other, within with how, how people compete, how the different creatures within the community compete with each other or cooperate with each other, what they're interested in, and things like that. Yeah, I'm I'm not a huge fan of uh, monster PCs, but uh, they did do a really good job with with this set. I I myself would probably never use them, but they were done very nicely. Yeah, I mean, I love things like you know the the goblin has a level two utility power called Little Green Lie. I mean, that's just awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do like that one. Funny, that one's really is. good. Yeah. yeah. Now, I think with the Cobalt, if I remember correctly, the original Cobalt as a playable PC race got the regular Cobalt shifty power. Right, you could shift as a miner. And mm-hmm. this version is 
pales in comparison. <laughs> it now has a an encounter power that's a move action that lets you and all your allies within two squares shift a square, which it just seems so disappointing in comparison. <laughs> which but is I really understand. funny because the goblin gets uh, an, a power that's an at-will power that lets it shift when it's been hit with uh, uh, missed with a melee attack. Right, but that's very which conditional. Is really, but I'm just... Yeah, I'm just saying, like, it's really funny that they, they took the shiftiness away from the kobold and the goblin still gets it. Mm-hmm. Well, the goblin, that's the regular goblin power for monsters, right? The goblin tactics? No, but a lot is, of goblins have yeah, that. Yeah, but, but, but yeah, why, take mean, it away, why, why take it away from the kobold, too? Kobolds are supposed to be shifty as well. I know, I think they just did it for balance. Well, I mean, you are still shifty, just only once per encounter. <laughs> and it's not really so much about the kobold himself being shifty as him helping his friends be shifty, which is kind of hard to flavor for me, but eh, that's okay. Well, it builds into the fluff that they wrote about the kobolds with their sort of community-minded atmosphere, too, where you get everyone in your group gets to shift around. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. a good point. Good every, point. every kobold's a leader? Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, well, they, particularly if they've been licked by a dragon. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I love that. <laughs> and if you present them with a dragon scale or something, they love you. They're willing to negotiate anything. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you guys. The The flavor on these things was fantastic. I mean, as a DM, if I had these people... Actually, I'm DMing for Encounters this season, and there are going to be kobolds and Svurfnibblin and goblins in my party, and so I, this really helps me know how to tie those characters into the story. It was really interesting to see in the Encounters character generation session, a lot of people were almost afraid to play the, the monster PC races because they thought they were bad guys, and, and they they tended more towards the Svurfnibblin or you know the existing races and the other... Uh, essentials books and whatnot um but you know you always get a couple people who are who are well i want to play a goblin because it's the new thing and and uh i think those people will do well with uh all they've been given mm-hmm. uh in this chapter oh yeah my table it was all about the goblins and kobolds and surf neblin they, they loved them do we want to move on to the uh to the next sort of pseudo section it's not really a new chapter but it's the dungeon themed powers and and they sort of they have them set up under little headings like Fear of the Dark, Secrets of the Deep Guides. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they did um, yeah. a, a little something new this time. First of all, you yeah. don't get like new class builds. You just get some new powers to choose from. And they put them all under these sort of categories, right? If, you, mm-hmm. if you're this kind of character, then here's maybe one or two powers for your class that, that will help sort of flavor it that way. Or if you're this kind of character, here's some, other, here's some powers mm-hmm. that you can pick pick from that will you know flavor yours and there's a you know a handful of ones from different classes there might be one for your class there might not but then there's also skill powers oftentimes that you know obviously is a lot more available to people um i would say this is the one section of the book that for me the flavor didn't work as well because um like you said it's, it's grouped under these themes like oh you're, you're the deep guides or oh you're in the, the shadow of the ziggurat and you're all uh you know aberrant influenced or you're from the thieves guild of male and they have powers from various classes or skills that are grouped under that it felt awkward somehow i mean it felt like mm-hmm. i didn't get it like there's you don't have to be they're not saying you have to be from this thieves guild to take the thieves guild power or mm-hmm. anything like that but i mean i like the stories there were some interesting stories here uh, but I don't know if grouping the powers this way, it just felt confusing to me. It does make it difficult to reference. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like and they them did, grouped. I, I like them grouped. Um, and I like the fluff surrounding it cause they give a little section, you know, description of like the thieves guild of male brathier. And, um, but on the, on the other hand, it is really hard to sort of look at, you know, f- to find one that you specifically wanted. And and while they grouped them and it sort of seems natural almost, 
there's also I'm kind of like like Michael. There's kind of this thing where it's there's a little bit of a disconnect, um, and it doesn't doesn't always work as well as I think they intended it to. So I'm sort of mixed feeling on this. I I think it's a good idea. I like them grouped, but uh, it's not 100 percent effective. I think they didn't do a good job of saying exactly what the you know prerequisite would be. Let's say for for something like that. Sure. Yeah, they're not quite organizations, but they they kind of are. One thing I do have to give them a lot of credit for, though, is um, bringing in support for things like the Rune Priest and the Seeker, which we haven't seen ever, and that was yeah. just awesome to see those finally brought back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for looking it up, I mean, they do have the tables at the beginning part, and some of them are organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Del- but, that, but that's sort of the point, is that some of them are, and some of them aren't, and some of them are, you know, uh, so th- it, it, it is occasionally feel, like, I like the idea of working around a theme and using that as, as inspiration for design. Mm. Um, but I also understand that, you know, some, the themes aren't all the same, you know, some of them are, I like that. <laughs> well, and that's, that's mm-hmm. fair. You know, some of them are organizations and some of them are just these loose sort of concepts and some of them are, you know, shared experiences or whatever. And to me that actually helps a lot because it gives uh, different ways for DM, DM to do in their own campaign that you don't have to have an mm-hmm. organization. You could have a bunch of people who have a similar thing, like they want to look for lost lore. They, mm-hmm. That could be an organization or that could just be uh, a, a bunch of things that, that people who tend to do that uh, tend to have in common. Yeah, that's fair. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, yeah. I'm, I'm not too worried about organization because everybody at my table is going to be using the character builder and they'll find what they want to that way. Yeah. Uh, given the choice, I would do it this way. I, I, I like it enough, mm-hmm. even though I have mixed feelings about it. I like it enough that I like this just because it has things surrounding it for you know a new player or something who really wants to know, well, why would I pick that power? You know, Here you have at least a, an entire column of text talking about why that might be necessary or pre- preferred by a particular type of character. And that's something I feel like 4E has been lacking a lot, not necessarily recently, but at least the first two or three years. You know, if you were a new player, it would be really difficult for you to tell, well, why would I choose one power over another? You know? Right. Mm-hmm. No, so absolutely. I think this goes a long way to yeah, I'm a, As somebody who's a big fan of, of building a character and choosing powers based off of story, um, I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm going to echo um, echo the comment from earlier about the artwork and stories and so on. Uh, like personally, there's, there's an image on page 62 of a seeker of lost lore reaching for some relic, and it's in this niche in a wall, surrounded by all these pointy blades, and there's blood mm-hmm. from previous people having reached in there and bloody handprints. Uh, yeah. And you see him straight stretching out anyway. I mean, I love that kind of artwork. That's just very cool because mm-hmm. it's, it's right in the middle of the action. Yeah, I, I actually. As I was flipping through it the very first time, I saw that picture and sort of stopped and focused on it and sort of like, oh my gosh, is he going to do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like the one at the end with the monster, the guy drawing on the cave wall. Oh, at the end of the book, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. Troglodyte, making little drawings. Here's what you're going to find in the cave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I like the, the full page one that introduces chapter two, where they have um, this this party of four adventurers, and they're sort of down at the bottom of the page, descending these stairs, and the, the stairs are gigantic and massive, and you can see how far down they've come with all these you know carvings on the wall, and their little tiny light looks so small in this massive darkness. Um, it's just very mm-hmm. evocative to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Which takes Absolutely. us to chapter two. Yep. What is chapter two? This is just our uh, big advice uh, fluff chapter, right? Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. Good, bad? Occasionally hilarious. 
<laughs> in, yes. in, in, in their top five rules of dungeon delving, uh, they tell they tell you uh, know when to turn back, and they're like, there, there are some adventurers who always press on. We call those people corpses. Like, I just found myself laughing a lot of times reading <laughs> mm-hmm. this book, where it's just like, yeah, they're just throwing that out there because it's true, and it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, and the, they have the dungeon do- don'ts on page 79, and that's where you have the information about the herd animals, and it's like, well, yeah, you know, you could try to, but herd animals can't open doors, and they need wa- food and water, so you better think about that, too. Although, if you yeah, have enough, sorry. I was going to say, it's kind of cool that they've talked about food and water frequently in this book, you know, mm-hmm. for both the adventurers and then here for the animals. Um, I, that's not something you don't, you don't see very often in 4th edition. Yeah, it's yeah. something that oftentimes mm-hmm. sort of gets, along with, like, things like encumbrance, you know, sort of gets swept yeah. under the rug and, and, and ignored. And to be fair, that's kind of how I like to handle it. But, yeah. you know, for parties <laughs> that want to think about that stuff, <laughs> they at least give you some, some ways of doing it. And, and I think there are moments when I, I would absolutely go to that and say, you know what, this is going to be important for this. You know, if you're in a setting, if you want to do even just a session or two in an adventure that, that captures sort of the idea of, like, a dark sun where the... The, the environment itself is against you and you need to plan for these things. You know, I could see doing that, you know, in a, in a heroic tier sort of adventure for a while and, and, until it sort of gets old and then, then I end up hand waving it eventually anyway. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I also like how they point out what other, what things like rituals from other books might be helpful and they give a, a brief explanation of, of how and why, it, why it's useful. Uh, in this, instead of creating all new powers or rituals or stuff like that. And then the other thing is they talk about the dungeon types and the different variations and the dangers and stuff and how you would explore them, which for me is great as someone who's relatively new to D&D still. I don't, I don't know all the old, old tropes because one of my fears uh, with some of the stuff I've, I've read online about D&D Next is like... Uh, people who played for a long time are going to start assuming that they say... Uh, something that should immediately evoke a crypt but doesn't for whatever reason in my head because i don't mm-hmm. i don't yeah, know the the reference, the reference. Yeah. no I, you know what i thought was interesting about the dungeon types is the, the various categories um they have a crypt and a cave and a maze and a mine and a floating castle where the heck did <laughs> floating castle come from mm-hmm. is that a common dungeon thing in earlier adventures well i think that what they're, they're very specifically trying to say look the concept of a dungeon includes you know, you know, limited choices, and these are the kinds of things you're going to see in it, and that kind of, you know, there are certain features that make something work like a dungeon in in terms of an adventure, and it doesn't have to be underground. I think that's sort of what they were the point they were trying to make with that example. My cynical, um, here comes old Sam the cynic. Uh, <laughs> there's not a lot new in the first half of this chapter uh, because if you look at the last three dungeon type books that have been released, they all have chapters like that. Yeah. Um, not in 4E, but in previous mm-hmm. editions. Um, and so here's the caveat to that. I say that like, what's new? But this book is a really good thing for new players, which I like about it. So I, I'm not really saying that's a derogatory thing. Mm-hmm. However, you know, if you go through two-thirds of a chapter and you think to yourself, man, I've read all this kind of stuff before. There's not really much new. Then you get to Floating Castle. Mm. You go, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, so, and this is yeah. the chapter I thought of when, when you guys were saying, well, this is an underdark book. Regardless of what the title says, this is an underdark, underdark yeah. book. But I look at this chapter and, I'm, and I say, I, I don't see a lot of underdark in there. I see dungeons. I see underground adventure. I don't necessarily see underdark. Mm. I like the death trap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the chapter closes out with a section about, I think it's the close of it, where it talks about, no, no, not the close. Uh, it gets into the dungeon denizens, all the different mm. monsters, mm-hmm. little little mm-hmm. write-ups, which I partly appreciated because there's a good write-up for Grimlocks here. And Grimlocks mm-hmm. got referenced like five times in the first chapter. You know, various characters had their family killed by Grimlocks and all these various mm-hmm. things you need to watch out for with Grimlocks. And I had to say, what in the world is a Grimlock? I have not personally encountered Grimlocks yet. And I understand now, after looking at yeah. them, that they go back a long way, but mm-hmm. I hadn't seen them before. He's the head of the Dinobots. <laughs> <laughs> and we also get Meepo. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Although I, f- I did find that interesting, uh, the whole, these are the kinds of creatures you could find in a dungeon, because in a game where we have... You know, how many books full of monsters plus magazines and all that? I mean, there are so many different monsters. Mm-hmm. There's no way they could even scratch the surface of ones that would be appropriate in a dungeon, you know? Right. So they had to sort of re- stick to the, the, the classic tropes, I guess. Yeah, yeah, except that most, like I said, for new players, you know, the monster manuals are not organized by ecological niche. Mm-hmm. So there's no way for a new player to know that Grimlocks are mostly found in the Underdark. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no there's no possible way to know that unless you read it spelled out in words in a sentence on a page. Sure. And in the Underdark book, it actually talks about Grimlocks and has stat blocks and whatnot. But um, so if you had that book, you would know. But if you don't have that book, then how would you? You, you wouldn't necessarily make the connection as you read through, say, the Monster Vault. Oh yeah, this would be a great dungeon creature. Like unless you were reading line by line by line, you mm-hmm. know. So I think they did go with the iconics because they're iconic sure. and recognizable, but also because, you know, just because they're iconic to me doesn't mean they're iconic to a new player. No. For a, for a DM, it's also really handy if you've got a newer player who's trained in Dungeoneering and says, okay, what, is that, what does that mean? What do I know if yeah. I'm trained in Dungeoneering? Mm-hmm. You can just point them at these six pages and say, this is sort of general knowledge you would know about stuff that's in Dungeons. Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 in this book in particular, they talk about they don't just talk about the monsters as as they did in in the monster manuals. They give hints uh, about what what a dungeon with these creatures in it would would be like. How would you would mm-hmm. like knowing about the 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 gelatinous cube kind of clears the walls off of anything. So if you have really so clean uh, dungeon walls, there, there's a good chance that there <laughs> there's a gelatinous cube around or or news of some type. And my favorite part of this section was as they went through sort of the the infamous dungeons of yore, um, mm-hmm. specifically the little sidebars because I'm a history guy and mm-hmm. I'm a gamer and I, and I love D and D and so when I can combine sort of my love of history and my love of D and D, I love you know, if if I I would eat up a, a textbook of D and D history you know <laughs> and so I just get a little little <laughs> snippets of that all throughout this book that was like the first thing I went to um, on my first skim through the book because I would zone in on those things and really fo- pay attention to those because that those kinds of things are really interesting to me they they go through a whole bunch of sort of classic dungeons and, and give sort of the history of this is when it was designed and who wrote it and what they were thinking and and some of their thoughts on it and all those kinds of things. I agree. This is another one that, since I'm still fairly new at this, I've only been in for about two and a half years. Um, I haven't played these adventures. You know, a, a little bit of Tomb of Horrors, and I, I did actually happen to buy the uh, Gates of Firestorm Peak so I could plunder some of it for my 4 game. Or, yeah, Gates of Firestorm Peak. But the others were, I'd heard of the Temple of Elemental Evil, but knew nothing about it, and mm-hmm. White Plume Mountain, and so on. 
Yeah, the only frustrating part about this for me is that there are not fourth ed versions of a lot of these. And so it was just sort of like, here's what the first edition one looked like. Here's what the cover looked like. And go talk to somebody who played it if you want to find out what was in it. it was, <laughs> it's not really like a, and, and here's ways you could lay it out if your players are interested in this. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of a, here's something to tease your players. And then if they demand that you run this thing, you've got to figure it out on your own. So I, I, I was not a big fan of that part. I mean, I appreciate the history. I appreciate that they're throughout the book they're referring back to previous editions and whatnot. But I would have appreciated a little bit more sort of mechanical support or number support or, or just even the idea that, oh, and by the way, we'll be publishing these modules over the next year or something like that. Yeah, see, part of me wonders if some of this isn't laying groundwork mm-hmm. or or th- well, them in a frame of thinking that, that was leading to uh, the D&D next stuff. Sure. So, so I so this is one of those sections that leaves me to have an overall love hate thing with this book is that mm. um, this section I, I there was a book they published right at the beginning of fourth edition called the Dungeons Survival Guide or something and it was mostly an advertisement <laughs> to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest uh, and it had a lot of this information about these sort of iconic dungeons and whatnot. Um, and a lot of this feels like a rehash of that, and and it and it the only thing of of real use other than history. And I'm like Jeff, I, I love history and stuff, but and you know, I've been playing for a long time, so it, it it does evoke a lot of nostalgia for me. But the only real use is the sort of little hooky tidbit they give right at the end of each little section. Uh, but there's no mechanics, and there's no like it's just a teaser. It's not really much of anything, and and it left me wondering why did they put these ten pages in this book. Like I feel like they could have used it for something else. I liked it though. I mean, I think that's the. I don't. Yeah. I mean, and on top of it, not everyone's a completist, so mm-hmm. like it's great that you have the three books in the past from about dungeons right, but, and and then and this one too. But right, right. But but what I'm saying is though, it doesn't even really do much for you either, though. Other than tell you, oh well, here was this iconic module, and here's what the cover looked like, and here's what you did in it. This was the basic story. Like that, that's yeah. kind of what I'm that saying. Does a lot, is, that does a lot do a lot for me because now I know what things to go look for. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like as, as a newer DM, it's a little bit inspiring to say, okay, here's this really cool adventure from the past and here's why it was iconic. And, you know, and here's you know, what it looked like, like you said. I mean, it kind of encourages you to, to go plunder them, to go say, hey, either update it yourself, you know, do your own version of it in fourth edition or look at it for inspiration because yeah. um, you can yeah, and just like with the, the description of the different dungeon types, it starts creating a shared language that we can use to talk about things. So we can understand. I've, I've got, I got the feeling from, from uh, reading about these different dungeons a little bit about the differences between them, too, and why you might play one over the other. Yeah, mm. I think this is geared. This is okay. really aimed at at newer people who are newer to D anD D, and maybe helping to ease people who are like Tracy and me, new to D anD D with fourth edition, into that D anD D next, which is going to be more a little bit more backward looking. You know, bringing the history of D anD D into the the modern game. Um, you know, maybe we will see updates on a lot of these adventures for D anD D next. Who knows? Mm, cool. Okay. I, I mean, I can accept that. I, I, you have perfectly valid points. I just think, you know, you could throw this as a 10-page web enhancement for this product or something. Well, that's true, too. It doesn't have to be in the book. Know. No. Yeah. I, well, either, so anyway. either way, it's going to get players excited about uh, about yeah. going into these, and then they're going to need gear, which is the next section. Yes. Yeah, and what I really need is a flotation bladder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to rise you know, above everyone to see else. The, uh, the Bullseye Lantern, had that been printed in 4th edition before? Uh, yeah, I think in Morden Canaan's. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yes. Ultimately, I don't know. Um, 
I do a yeah. lot more DMing than I do playing, and then, hold uh, on, I'll look it, it up. Hasn't, it hasn't been <laughs> a significant issue in my games, so. Well, that's one that I, I did actually read the third edition books like ten years ago, but never actually really got into the game. And that was one of those things that I read about the Bullseye Lantern, and somehow that that captured my imagination as a really cool thing. And then I didn't see it in fourth edition. So hey, it's back. There it is. <laughs> well, in in third edition they had lines, and in fourth edition they kind of got rid of line effects, and so mm-hmm. I think I think it made the Bullseye Lantern a little harder to to adjudicate use mechanically. Yeah. Sure. I like that they, they encourage you explicitly, be creative with this stuff. I mean, they have a little sidebar yeah. on using mm-hmm. equipment effectively. And, I mean, this this is the kind of thing that people who don't like 4th edition complain about its absence. Like, oh, everybody's mm-hmm. just you know using powers they don't think. And this book, uh, lots of places, not just here, but here especially, say, you know, be creative. I mean, this is a role-playing game. It's open-ended. You can do whatever you want. Um, try something that's not specifically in the write-up for the item that you have. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been saying for some time, I feel like... Um if the stuff that's been coming out for the last couple of years for 4th edition had come out at the beginning of 4th edition, we wouldn't be talking about D&D Next right now. Yeah, totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't see it in Morden Canaan, so I was wrong. So I apologize for that. It might be in one of the other two Adventurers books, but uh, okay, perhaps not. So anyway. Shall we move along to Chapter 3? Yes. The Master of the Dungeon. Uh, just real quick, the al- alchemical items yep. are just mm-hmm. also awesome because they give ideas of how to use stuff from the monsters or from the environment in uh, caves and stuff. Mm. Oh yeah, I, re- I really liked that. Good, good, good call. I really like. And I enjoyed that. the like something with Abeleth slime. It tells you, you know, here's the cost to make it. But in the fluff write up, it says, you know, you got to go find an Abeleth. You know, you have to find a place where it's left slime if you want to harvest it and make this stuff, which is cool. All right, so chapter three then is more advice. Um, <laughs> But it's it's less fluff and it's more advice for DM specifically, mm-hmm. right? Which is is also interesting because I feel like chapter one is all players, chapter three is all DMs, and chapter two is sort of for it's people both. people interested in dungeons. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so I I really like this section because the whole involving the characters mm-hmm. is wonderful. Yeah, I'm a yeah. I'm a big fan of using mechanics to support and bring people into um, story and games, and that's a lot of what themes can do, and this gives you a lot of yep. very specific ways. You know, If they took this theme, here's something you can do to bring them in, and if they pick that theme, use it this way. Right. This is yeah, reward so. them for, for using this book and making the theme. And so one thing I want to say is one of the great things about this book is you can basically build – you can almost build an entire PC with this book. And mm-hmm. – this, then the second half of this book, the DM's part, says, okay, your person just went and built a PC specifically for this. You know, there, there's almost enough powers in here to build, you know, a third-level PC mm-hmm. in, in, in its entirety, okay? Here's how you hook them in and make that useful for them, rather than just, oh, well, they took it because they wanted it, you know? Right. That's and, and, it's, and it's less about rewarding them like you're you're cooler than everybody else. It's more about rewarding them as in, like... And making their choices matter. Your yeah. Cho- yeah, your choices yeah, yeah. are yes. part of the story now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the big things I really like about it, too, is it's continuation of that shared language thing. They talk... So not only do they give ways to integrate the different themes, but they categorize them so that that way, you, as you're looking out through your adventure planning, you can say, like, oh, I've done a lot of uh, foreshadowing, but I haven't done any misdirection, or I haven't introduced any new uh, NPCs uh, mm-hmm into the into the campaign for a while maybe it's time to do that mm-hmm. mm. can i say one one more awesome thing about this chapter 
Yeah. Is on, starts on page 125 <laughs> and uh, it's called Mysteries and Puzzles and it's like like six six or ten or something really good tips for the DM on how to run a successful puzzle in your yeah. game, which is something that we have needed mm-hmm. <laughs> since yeah. the DMG one. It's not an easy skill. Yes. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy at all. And these well, tips are solid too. Hmm. Just before this, that uh, piece, there's this part about exploration and choices and just Mm -hmm. little things, tips of the DM about how to make your dungeon come alive a little bit more. And I liked, like, they talked about repeat a motif, have some kind of, you know, some some design or or color or something that appears throughout the dungeon and uh, and to to give the players, like, oh, man, I've seen that before. I know what that means. Um, That's It's a very simple thing, but it's the kind of thing I haven't read before, and I like that. I mean, it's like, yes, that will help me be a better dungeon master. A lot of concrete stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you uh, watch Doctor Who, they do that a lot in their recent seasons with Bad Wolf and uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's sort of a theme throughout the season and then you don't really, it, it get, all gets sort of tied up at, at the very end and it suddenly all makes sense and you could easily do that with a dungeon sort of uh, situation. Yeah, they've paid a lot of attention to sensory details as well which uh, when I'm not playing d and I'm a creative writing teacher and I really appreciated that, like there's a whole sidebar on page 129 of different random little things you can do just to make an area memorable to your players and it's just it's a little sensory detail that will stick out in their mind so they can be like, oh yeah let's go back to that pit that had the weird light reflecting off the crystals or let's mm-hmm. go to you know that section where there was that weird whistling noise coming through and there didn't seem to be any wind and i think that really helps to make a boring dungeon crawl come alive mm-hmm. and, and feel like there's stuff going on yeah you know what i i always use because i study olfaction in my day job is smell Oh because yeah. Whatever what it smells like tells you a heck of a lot about what you might find at the end of that tunnel you're walking mm-hmm. down. Uh, and my players know that, and so they're always like, "What does it smell like?" <laughs> <laughs> now this chapter also gives us the return of some classic spells. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, we got the with what's called the scrolls of power. You have the return of mass heal, polymorph. Um, let's see what else you have: power word to kill and wish. And and in a way that firmly puts them into the hands of the DMs, like these are special occasion sort of things. Um, but at the same time, in a way that that I think does a nice job of paying an homage to the classic spells. You know, <laughs> N- now the things that people know as being part of D anD D are in Fourth Edition D anD D. And I love the artwork for the wish. Oh, me too. Yes. I was going to say the yes. same thing. <laughs> the kobold wishing for flying on a dragon and, and exulting <laughs> in his piles of, of uh, coins and treasure. Oh, so cool. This is the section where I where I thought what Jeff said earlier, that you know if we had had this book three years ago, we probably wouldn't be talking about D&D next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, we kind of skipped over it, but there was a whole section about you know the Underdark and, and building dungeons intelligently, mm-hmm. um, and then who, who else builds dungeons. I mean, these things really... It will help the adventures you make be more immersive and, and more, you know, for the people who like more simulation, I think it'll be more realistic. I mean, it's still fantasy, mm-hmm. of course, but believable, yeah. I guess, is the word. Yeah. Well, I yeah. really like the Dungeon Maker section, which is the one you're talking about, where they, mm-hmm. they say, yeah. like, how would cultists make a dungeon? But what I, re- what I like to do with this type of stuff is uh, pick two or more groups that maybe uh, had the dungeon over time. Right. And mm-hmm. so you could start with whoever created it and make that, like, 
pretty obvious. And then whoever came in next, what changes would they make it to make it more suitable for themselves? And then that way the, the dungeon also has a story as people go through because then they can start question about uh, why things are a certain way. Absolutely. You can combine yep. some of those. You know, one thing that was in that section, I guess right before the Dungeon Makers, they had an example skill challenge on page 132, 133. That, I gotta say, that kind of fell flat for me. I mean, it's been hard for them to do good skill challenges. I have seen very few that I've enjoyed. And this one, same thing. I read it like, yeah, if I were running this, I'd still be modifying it heavily on the fly. Sure. I think that's just how skill challenges are. The mechanics of the skill challenge is not necessarily relevant to how skill challenges are being played. Yeah. yeah and, and, I, I think- and never really have been. I think part of the problem is that, you know, this whole book, that's, that's on page 132. So it just spent 131 pages telling you how to create this thematic environment. And then it tries to spend like a page and a half on, well, here's a skill challenge you can do, you know, testing endurance and athletics to see if yeah. your PCs overcome it. It's kind of like, eh, okay, that that's very not forced. useful. Yeah, yeah I, I, I wish they'd left that out. Yeah, yeah, it didn't do much for me. And then they have a small section on Dungeon Companions, which includes Meepo. <laughs> and and the thing I love about Dungeon Companions, I mean, uh, Splug had the similar sort of thing, where they can go wrong, but they're just mm-hmm. so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Tracy, you may be making a reference that not everybody understands. Explain Meepo. Yes, I, do, I can't really explain Meepo. I know Meepo <laughs> exists. And she so can I'm, explain Splug. Splug. Was Meepo the one from uh, Keep on the Shadowfell? That was Splug. That was no, Splug. that was Splug. Oh, yeah. All right. Meepo is like, was it at least third, if not? Oh, older. Meepo's the old old school one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I think from one of Merle's campaigns, right? That sounds right. So, but yeah, Meepo's a, a what a kobold you could sort of run into and can you know if you're you know that situation where the party doesn't want to just completely slaughter all the monsters and one of them is cowering in fear. Okay, well you join us. Well, now you've got Meepo. Meepo lacks the cruelty found in many kobolds. He is a sensitive fellow. Any injury to his beloved dragon causes him to break down in fear for the dragon and of, and of the punishment he might face for failure to keep the dragon safe. So do not touch his dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Although the picture doesn't make him look fearful and, and sympathetic. That's true. Uh, and then I actually... I question... The appendixes. The appendices. That's the word, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Because I feel like the appendices are very much for DMs and should just be part of Chapter 3. Like, is there any reason these needed to be an appendix? Why couldn't they just be a subsection in Chapter 3? Because that really feels like what they are. Well, because well, they so- kind of they break up the flow of the text if you included them within Section 3. Okay. Sure. Mm. Also, in older books, the appendices were always at the back with all the random tables, and so that's another throwback to previous editions. Yeah. yeah, yeah appendix 2 with the random dungeon tables, that was kind of fun. <laughs> I love that. It's fun. I don't know if I'll ever use it, but it's fun. Oh, no, I, I, I like that it exists. But it's fun. <laughs> and uh, page 154, uh, I, I love that they just randomly threw in a big thing from Gary Gygax. Like, it, it made the whole thing sort of pull uh-huh. together and be like, this is part of an ongoing narrative that's been going on since, uh, you know, the 70s. Yeah. This book contains text that was written in the year I was born. Cool. <laughs> That's old school. Yeah. Well, any uh, last thoughts on Into the Unknown? Yes, of course. Two things that I haven't said already. Uh, number one, I think uh, they really did an excellent job with the sidebars in this mm-hmm. particular book. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. In that 
a lot of times I'll be reading along and then I'll get to a good breaking point and I'll, and I'll sort of glance over before I turn the page and I'll read the sidebar and the sidebar sort of breaks me away from whatever I was reading so that when I, I turn the page, I have to flip back again and read the first part of the last paragraph, you know, to sort of catch up and get my context back to the actual text because the sidebar sidebar is kind of not related altogether. Sure. And pretty much every sidebar other than maybe the, the history part of the book, Every sidebar really fits in with the text. It's like it doesn't even break your – because it's so well enmeshed, and it's really good advice in most cases. Mm. And the second thing was uh, – oh, actually, there's two more. Um, the first one is <laughs> – sorry, I know I talk a lot. Uh, the, the first one is you know, uh, in the Underdark, there's something that you see a lot of, and that is drow, and there's not a lot of drow in this book. So if you're looking for a really drow-centered – not that there aren't drow, because they get mentioned and, and there's quite a few passages about them, but it's not in any way, shape, or form drow-centered. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so there's that. And the third thing was, um, you know, in the original Underdark supplement book for fourth edition, it's meant mostly as a paragon tier excursion type place and heroic tier only very lightly and not even into more than the superficial layers of of the underdark and this book seems to be focused entirely on heroic tier so oh. uh if if you have a sort of mental disconnect you'll get over it real quick cuz it's so well written but um that it is that is sort of i thought of that as i was you reading you know that it. didn't even occur to me um, cuz i oftentimes look for that kind of thing cuz i want to know how how useful a book is going to be over the course of of years in a campaign and whatever um, and I sort of felt like, okay, well, well, since they did focus on themes and 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 what have you, then I, I sort of get where you're coming from. Um, but the rest of it is all more or less universal, you know. Mm-hmm. Dungeons are yeah. dungeons, whether you're you're second level or or twenty second level. Um, uh, and 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 in fact, when you get to the, like the the scrolls of power, I feel like that's definitely getting up there. And I wouldn't hand yeah, a lot of those I, out to Heroic Tier. I don't disagree, but but at least at least two thirds of the book has a decidedly heroic bent to it. Okay. I think that's fair. Um, yeah. So, and like the new powers they introduce are almost all heroic. I, mm-hmm. I see a level thirteen, a level fifteen, a couple of yeah. more thirteens. That's about it. So, but, yeah. and a lot a lot of the text talks about you know here's what you can do to spice this up, especially for heroic tier characters. You know. Mm-hmm. But the, aren't a lot of the books the the Underdark book that's already out is is not heroic tier at all. It's mostly uh, right. It's it's paragon right, tier. Right. Yeah, that's that's that was exactly my point. Was yeah. If you were expecting another sort of paragon tier focused book, you're not gonna get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what I want to know is, having gone through this book, Tracy, mm-hmm. do you now love dungeons? <laughs> <laughs> love is such a strong word. <laughs> do you tolerate dungeons? <laughs> oh, I've always tolerated dungeons. Actually, and the things that. I didn't like about dungeons because we all make fun of me and my dungeon thing. But uh, one of the things I didn't like about dungeon in the past was um, creating ones that didn't have a story to them that were just totally uh-huh. illogical. And this book does not overly support creating those mm-hmm. unless you start doing the random table stuff. So <laughs> sure. Uh, so that makes me happy. Oh, good. My only other last thought on the book is that um, the propensity for name changes does drive me a little bit crazy name changes because the book was not originally called into the unknown mm-hmm. it was the oh, the, right. the dungeoneer's handbook or whatever and it's mm-hmm. gone through uh, i think i've been told three or four name changes over the course of, of the book and it drives me a little crazy because 
I, I'm the D&D guy in, in whatever circle I'm in, typically, right? Uh, and so when I go to the game store and say, I'd like the Dungeoneer Survival Guide, and the, the guy behind the counter looks at me like, I, I have no idea what book you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's right. It has a different name now. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, it is certainly confusing because it's, it's a product that, that I've been hearing about for some time now, but I've heard about it referenced in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of drives, yeah. drives me a little bit nutty, but not enough to, to you know, affect the quality of the product. Mm. I just I just like how they trademarked the Dungeon Survival Handbook, as if those words are you know <laughs> not used in any other context anywhere else in the world ever. <laughs> I just I think that the women who live in the who live and work in these dungeons really need uh, new outfit makers, new tailors. Yeah, well, a lot I, of them live in the dark, though. I mean, they may not be able to see what they look Fashion's like. Just yes, not important. But but in the dark, dangerous. <laughs> So, we will have something that that only slightly covers the boobs. Yes, my my favorite picture. I can't find it now. It's the one with the hook horror. Oh yes, it's on page thirty-five. So, if you turn to page thirty-five, so first, I love the rendition of the hook horror. It looks Uh awesome. It It looks dangerous. It looks whatever. And then there's a little goblin woman there um, with giant breasts. Yeah, and of course it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, why is this goblin? I just, it just, yeah. Well, and so is the Sferfneblin. The Sferfneblin, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Goblin, and goblins and and deep gnomes are known for being uh, sex symbols, so I'm sure that's what they're, <laughs> they're trying to sell <laughs> sell it with sex. And, and then page sixty five has it coming up just to cover the nipples, but everything else is shown. Yeah, that was rather impractical armor there. Now I, oh, I happen wow. to know for yeah. a fact that that she just recently gave birth and is still nursing and needs <laughs> quick access, <laughs> just, just in case the baby gets hungry. Sure, okay. You obviously didn't read her backstory. Yeah. <laughs> I know. The, some of them, some of them made sense. Like the the drow woman, I think mm-hmm. she ends up seducing uh, her captive a captor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so okay, like she's got to be a little sexy, but some of these people were not at all. <laughs> There is at least page eight has the Eladrin Paladin who is totally covered in armor, so there's at least that. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's not. It's for me. It's not necessarily even the covering thing. It's just the, the the art not really matching the the descriptions of the backstories. Yeah, right. But what's really funny though about that Paladin is you never see another picture of her. I know. I know. The rest of the book. (laughs) Really? Oh man. Yeah, I noticed that. I I had. I anyways. Prismatic, anyway, prismatic yeah. art collection.com, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All anyway, right. So, <laughs> should we uh that's what we should say trouble. goodbye and and move on and we're going to we're going to go off and talk to uh Matt James about his work on the book. Yeah. Awesome. And now before we head off into the sunset or, you know, maybe climb into a deep dark well, let's talk to Matt James. Matt, welcome back to the show, sir. What's going on? So we're here to talk to you about Into the Unknown, the Dungeon Survival Handbook. Yes, sir. Uh, can you? Which, by the way, which by the way was like the third title. For yeah, this. yeah, it's confused the heck out of me. When yeah. I tried to order it from my uh, local game store, I made I asked them to save me a copy of the Dungeon Survival Handbook, and they're like, "We have no idea what you're talking about." So, <laughs> yep. But in any case. Um, you worked on this book. Your name is, is number two on the credits there. So w- what was your role? What did you work on? 
Um, I was one of the designers of this book, and I roughly wrote one-third of it, um, a whole bunch of different things, but notably that people might recognize, I worked on the Sphere of Neblin. Um, some of the themes I worked on was the Trapsmith and the Treasure Hunter. Um, there were some others that we had a whole, when we were working on this, there was a whole slew of things that we had worked on. Some of it makes it and some of it doesn't, and it might show up in a different product at some point. But um, So I worked on that. I worked on some of the dungeon types. Um, as well as uh, wrote up some of the backgrounds for the infamous dungeons. Um, did a lot of work on the Dungeoneer's tools. Uh, you know, did a little bit of this, that, and the other. But most notably, one of the more fun things I got to work on was the Scrolls of Power. So, like, uh, taking the lead from uh, Robert Schwab, who already had kind of a, a foundation built for how these were going to work, specifically with Power Word Kill, I came up with some of the... Uh, mechanics and uh, you know workflow for you know wish and and the other ones that are there. Talk about that a little bit. The idea of taking some of these old sort of um, staples of D and D that didn't exist in fourth edition, at least not in a in a fully fleshed out way, and, and making them something that works in fourth edition. You know, how do you take wish, which is always sort of very broad and, and ill-defined intentionally. So and make it something that works in, in the mechanics of fourth edition. Well, I've been playing this game for a very long time. I, I was first introduced in second edition and, you know, there are certain iconic staples of a game that, that people kind of think back on and whether or not they like how they were implemented. They like that, that it's a part of the legacy of the game. So in this book, it gave us the opportunity to do that. And one of the design tenements that was kind of established early on was how do we introduce these very powerful spells without unbalancing the game uh, or, or making it just inappropriate at inappropriate times. And, you know, the idea behind the scroll of power came up and we wanted to put it firmly in the hands of the dungeon master, meaning that, uh, you you know a player couldn't purchase this at all. There's no amount of money or anything else that a player can do within the system to get a hold of this. It, it requires the dungeon master to give it out. So um, I think I created like five or six different scrolls of power, and as you can see, the ones that made it was Mass Heal, Polymorph, and Power Word Kill and Wish. And uh, at first, I think we were kind of looking at ways of giving it is much power as you would think it would have, but there was going to be a drawback as well. Um, I think that kind of got walked back a bit and, uh, you know, this, it's mainly a plot device. I see these as, so, uh, if your dungeon master wants to, for instance, give you the wish spell, he, or wish scroll, he can, and it's obviously going to do some really gnarly things. So the dungeon master has to be very careful in how he implements these. But now in fourth edition, like the editions prior, that option is there to have these iconic abilities. Very cool. One of the things I noticed also reading through it, besides bringing back some of those uh, power word, word kill and things like that, were just little hints as to the old tropes with going through dungeons. Like the 10-foot pole tricks, and you may want to bring in livestock, but here's why that's not really a good thing. Do you want to talk more about that sort of stuff too? Yeah, uh, w one of the things that um, that everyone kind of agreed on, I think Logan really kind of hammered home, was um, 
we really wanted this book to feel kind of uh, exciting, like such as when you read it, the the way the prose is established, kind of like if you think of Indiana Jones, I always tell people we wanted to give it that that kind of feel to it as you read it, you know, how it would be silly if you went into a dungeon without, you know, an ancient brass lantern or, you know, the 10-foot pole. So we wanted to, to as the reader kind of goes through it, we wanted to give them that sense of adventure um, while at the same time staying true to some of the, like you said, the funny tropes of, of D&D's past. Right on. So who should buy this book? You know, Every uh, single person. I actually recommend it for ages uh, 2 to 78 um, because one, if you're a one-year-old, I mean, that's just silly. I mean, what's a one-year-old going to do? And 78, 78, I mean, you might want to just retire and hang out. So I don't want them to strain their eyes. So that's why. What about- I, I think I think you're you're missing the mark here. When I retire, I'm going to be gaming twenty four seven. that's the point on, of retirement. And on top of it, that's just limiting yourselves to humans. I mean, what about elves and dwarves and aliens? Other, yeah, you know, uh, they they may have longer lifespans. You're well, listen, of- listen, listen, listen. Uh, you know, this I might be racist, but this book is just for humans. I'm just saying. <laughs> Okay. Oh, oh! I see how it is. I'm just saying, maybe maybe a dwarf or or a half orc. <laughs> elves, I don't know. I just you know. I think elves need it the most, don't they? Good point. They are squishy. So 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 more to the point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the book is not specifically targeting DMs or players. So it's, what? It's I, I see. What, I, I see what you're getting. So at. what kind of person do you imagine ah, being the audience? Insight check. Pass that time. All right. <laughs> Reroll plus two. Uh, yeah, this book, you'll see people talking about it. There's a lot of DM and player content in it. You know, it's really interesting seeing the community kind of review it and go through it because, you know, some people say, oh, there's more DM content. And then some people are like, well, no, actually, there's more a player can do with it. Um, that's kind of cool because it's an unintended kind of consequence of how this book was put together and uh, i mean we knew we wanted equal parts for the dungeon master and the player but we didn't know how that dynamic would play out and it sounds like we were able to blur those lines a little bit which is really cool so this book came out after D next was announced yes it did is there any sort of concern about being overshadowed by the big announcement is are you concerned that not as many people are going to be into this book because they're all looking ahead to the next edition now Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm not worried about it, but yeah, I did not. I'm trying to think. When did I work on this? Last summer. Um, I did not know about D&D Next at the time that I was writing this book or working on this book. Um, so when it was finally announced, it's one of those like, yeah, D&D Next. Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> I got a book that's coming out in May. Now nobody's going to want to buy it. But if you look back at the legacy of these Dungeoneer books, they kind of have a lot of good advice that kind of transcends different editions. Um, I mean, if you're looking for mechanical type things, I mean, obviously those don't translate well between editions. But just, you know, advice of, you know, grabbing your pack and preparing for going into the dungeon, you know, that's kind of universal. So. Mm-hmm doesn't matter yeah. what rule set you're using going into a dungeon is a dangerous enterprise 
Well, and flipping, like, looking through it, it seemed a lot of the DM advice would, it is pretty system neutral. It is. And how to design dungeons and why you might design them certain ways and, and stuff like that. Right. We had the different types, so we wanted to kind of inspire people to design design to the, uh, to the layout of the setting that you're in and not necessarily design to the mechanical content of a monster or a power. Right. And one of the interesting things, and you already kind of touched on this, was the section looking back at uh, dungeons from years past, mm-hmm. the iconic du- dungeons going through that. And, and I think that, too, is is very useful going into a new edition, uh, particularly one that's supposed to envelop all of D&D. Absolutely. All right. Well, unless you've got anything else, Tracy? We're going to go ahead and let Matt go then. Uh, So, with that, we're going to say goodbye to Matt James. Thank you for coming on the show again, sir. Thanks, guys. Have me back more often. Cool. So that was Matt James talking about how he contributed to the book. Uh, At this point, we'd like to thank our guest, Michael, Online DM. Where can people find you? Uh, You can find me on my blog at OnlineDungeonMaster.com or on Twitter as OnlineDM1. Nice. And Joe? Uh, I am on uh, Twitter as Joe Listowski uh, or running D&D Encounters in uh, Western Massachusetts in Northampton at Modern Myths. Nice. And we have our editor, Sam. Do we really need to tell people where they can find you? Uh, sure, why not? I'm going to plug RPG Musings. Jeez, Tracy. Sarah Dark Magic. Um, <laughs> you can find me at RPGmusings.com, where I'm currently in the middle of writing a retro review series of the old expert modules. I've done one through three so far, so go check it out. Speaking, you have- speaking of, you know, if you really enjoyed the, the history sections of the different modules from this book, Sam will yeah. give you a little insight of some other ones. Yeah, there you go. Sam has quite the RPG collection. Uh, <laughs> that is out. And we'd also like to thank our sponsors, GameRoddy.com and Continue Magazine. If you want to get a hold of the show, you can contact us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Call into the biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. That's 919-BIZ-TOME. Or swing over to the forums at GamersHavenPodcast.com. And as always, you can find show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. And that is episode 196, where I learned to tolerate the dungeon. (laughs) That's not why I wrote the script. (laughs) While reviewing Into the Unknown in this episode of... I'm off the wall.